Welcome to the LifeHouse Church Podcast. LifeHouse is a church that exists to invite all people to live an uncommon life by following Jesus, doing life together, getting in the game, and leaving a legacy. We hope that today's message helps you grow as a follower of Jesus, gives you perspective to see yourself and others differently, and inspires you to make a difference in the world around you. Now, let's get to this week's message. And we want to close out this What It Is series with James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. So you can turn there, you can swipe there if you're looking on your phone. But while you're doing that, I want to share a story briefly about the seventh president of the United States and his funeral. And that president was Andrew Jackson, a veteran of not just the Revolutionary War, but the War of 1812. He served in two wars and lived to tell about it. And matter of fact, once he retired, he didn't retire from this life of violence. He grew into a habit of challenging people he disagreed with to duels, with guns, right? Matter of fact, true story, while serving in the Senate, he once dueled and killed a man who accused him of cheating on a horse race and insulted his wife. And y'all thought some of the politicians today were crazy, right? But according to one biographer, Jackson had this reputation of a volcano that only the most intrepid or recklessly curious cared to see erupt. He was this serial duelist. Some putting the number of people he challenged to duels in the dozens. So this man survived the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and all these different duels, and he died in bed peacefully at age 78. And in spite of making all these enemies, he served as the President of the United States. So his funeral was well attended. And one thing in attendance among the many guests was his pet parrot. Yeah, this reckless and rough, rugged vet had a pet parrot. And yes, this parrot was the kind that would echo and repeat words that you said. So you can imagine, based on the personality of Andrew Jackson we just learned about, this ended poorly. Matter of fact, before the funeral could even get fully rolling, head snapped backwards as a volley of cuss words that you don't say in church started coming from this parrot. And they had to remove the parrot before the funeral proceeded anymore. Y'all can look that up. It's a true story. <laughs> and I share that for two reasons. One, it's hilarious. And two, it begs the question, if all your words that you utter in the privacy of your home were spoken at your funeral, would you be at peace or horrified? Right? If every word you ever spoke was broadcast publicly, would you blush? Because that may be a very unique story, but it points to a universal truth. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. Every idle word, every single one. And maybe you're like me, like I preach because God called me to it. I'm not a very loquacious, outspoken individual. My wife can attest. She, sometimes she's like, well, you just talk, right? <laughs> but even if you would say, I don't talk that much, so I'm good. On average, on average, the average person's single day's words would fill a 50-page book. In a year's time, the average person's words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. All of a sudden, this idea that God has a divine wiretap on our conversations and our words gets really real. Because our, our present words will have future consequences. We'll have to give an account for every word we've spoken in our lifetime. And maybe some of you would think, isn't God a God of grace, right? This seems like overkill from an overbearing God. But it is serious. Because words are serious. The Bible equates our words with having the power of life and death. And here's the scary part. In light of that, our lethal words can be hard to keep under control. 
No doubt you guys have read this verse in this series, but in James 3, 7, it says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. There may be men who call themselves the tiger king, but there is no person who rules perfectly over their tongue. There's no tongue king because the tongue can't be tamed by any human. It's not like a pet you keep at home and it's domesticated. It's more akin to a wild predator like a tiger that would do damage if it's let out of its cage. So God has placed our tongue in its mouth between these bars, our teeth, (laughs) because it's dangerous. But why? Why is it so hard to control our tongue? And if no human can tame it, like, is there any hope? Should I just never speak again? How do we use it to speak life and not death, to help and not hurt? This is why I opened with this story, these verses, these ideas, because that's how our text opens this morning. And listen, this is not just some practical self-help. It's intensely spiritual because God doesn't want to just be Lord over your heart. He wants to be Lord over your lips. He doesn't want to just transform my heart. He wants to transform my mouth. Jesus said it's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth speaks. So let's begin. Let's read James chapter 1. Verses 19 through 27. James writes, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God that he has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion In the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. See, we intro with this idea of our our big mouth and our uncontrollable tongue because this is how James opens our passage this morning. And I want to park it here for a little bit before progressing to the rest of the passage. But there is one overarching idea I want to hit home this morning. We shouldn't settle for being right. We should seek to make things right. So we did a study in our church a couple years ago. It pulled from Andy Stanley's teachings, and this was one of his points. And it it came to mind this week as I was reading through uh, Colossians because Paul hammers home in Colossians that it's not what you know that saves you. It's who you know that saves you. And when you realize this, being right matters a lot less because what we know isn't ultimately of utmost importance. It's who we know that saves us. Relationships matter with God and with people. So we don't settle for being right. We seek to aim, excuse me, we seek to make things right. Like, listen, a lot of folks are going to be disappointed when they finally open their Bible and they see that being right is not a fruit of the Spirit. Right? Like, I'm kidding, but I'm not. I truly believe the church will turn a corner in America when we stop trying to own people online and try to work to win them to the kingdom. But that takes a couple steps we're going to look at this morning. One is from stepping to, from speaking to listening, and the other is from listening and hearing to doing. And this is key because we all have a little Andrew Jackson in us. 
right? That man loved to fight. Again, not just as a veteran of two wars, but he was addicted to dueling with people. Now, we may not go around looking to fire on people, but what we just looked at, there's power in our words, and they can do significant damage. But spirit-filled, Jesus-following disciples don't love to fight people. They fight to love people. Sure, they may fight for truth when it's necessary, but they value winning people over winning an argument. Let me put it this way. We should be willing to fight when it's necessary, but too many of us are itching to fight no matter what. Now, it wasn't about the War of 1812 that Andrew Jackson served in, but the movie 1917 is about a man given the task of telling men at the front lines to stand down, calling off an attack that would save thousands and countless lives. And at the outset, the general feels the need to warn him, make sure there are witnesses because some men just like to fight. His concern was that some men would have been willing to ignore the step to save lives out of this itch to fight. My concern is that many in the church have this same attitude when it comes to waging war with their words. Too many are more concerned with winning arguments than they are winning people and saving souls. Again, we should be willing to fight for truth when it's necessary, but too many of us are itching to fight no matter what. And there's a big difference because the Bible calls us to be ministers of reconciliation. That means we're not just reconciled vertically with God. That relationship isn't the only one that matters. We're called to reconcile horizontally with those around us. And this job description means we should be fighting for reconciliation, not resolve to fight. This has implications practically throughout life. Like how do I stand down in a conversation or a debate when the Andrew Jackson in me starts to rise up? How do I give up my need to be right with my spouse or my coworker or my friend or my neighbor so that we can make things right? How do we fight for reconciliation and make things right rather than be resolved to fight? And James gives us this simple recipe in the passage of the chapter we just read. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Easily memorized. It's catchy, right? Easily quotable. But the problem is, it's much easier said than done. Because, again, we all got a little Andrew Jackson in us. But let's look at deeper at what James says. First, he says everyone should be quick to listen. See, the church is likened to a body in Scripture. We're the body of Christ. And Paul breaks this down, and Paul even highlights how people often have a desire to be a specific body part. And what I see so often is we all have the desire to be God's mouthpiece. And it's not always bad, but we always have the, the wisdom or the verse or the platitude to, to just speak out in any situation. And when you're encouraging loved ones, you're, you're sharing uh, verses with people that need it, that's all well and good. But so often we want to use these platitudes and these verses to shout down those who don't think like us or believe like us. But you know what's just as important as the mouth that far few people, far fewer people want to be? is his ears. I love Psalm 116 verse 2 that says, because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. The revelation that sparked this faith for David in his prayer life and in his life wasn't what God had spoken. It wasn't his voice or some truth. It was the fact that God hears. And he doesn't just hear, he listens. So the question that that we should answer is, do we? Do I? See, Jesus, God in the flesh, demonstrated this pattern of listening. There's this stat I will never forget that in the Gospel of Mark, there are over 60 conversations that Jesus has with people, and he asks no fewer than 50 questions. 
If anyone could have led with the answers and confronted people with the truth from the outset, it was Jesus. Like, he didn't even need the answers to the questions. He's all-knowing. But what Jesus was modeling for us is be quick to listen and slow to speak. May we be people that are quick to listen because when we use our ears before our mouth, the second step becomes easy. Be slow to speak. Look, I hate being late. (laughs) Steph knows, right? I don't like being late. There are few areas in life where it should be your goal to be late. But one is certainly when you're in a discussion and you're ready to push back, right? When you're itching to respond in kind to your spouse or a sibling, when you're ready to counter, be late. <laughs> a proverb that echoes what we read in James is Proverbs 29:20, where it says, do you see a man who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or you want a proverb that emphasizes or epitomizes this series, what it is, and keeps it really real? Proverbs 18:13 in the message version reads, answering before listening is both stupid and rude. Quick to listen and slow to answer. This verse echoes the advice we get in James. But again, this advice is more than practical. It's more than the the practical old advice to think before you speak. It's about making sure people actually care when you speak, right? You want people to not care about a word you have to say? Show them that you don't care about them. And an easy way to do that is don't listen to them. Don't listen to any of their cares or concerns. Just talk over them. People will care about what you have to say when you've shown that you care about them. And an easy way to do that is be quick to listen and slow to speak. So James holds up these two opposites, speaking and listening, our mouth versus our ears. And so far, the focus is on being measured in our speech and studious in our listening. Because if you're faithful in that, then again, the next part becomes easy. And the next part is this this command to be slow to become angry. The book of James has often been compared to the Old Testament wisdom books like Proverbs. Some people call it like the Proverbs of the New Testament or, or Psalms or Ecclesiastes, the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And Ecclesiastes 7, 9 is a great verse for our outrage addicted culture because it says, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Matter of fact, you go through Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, every mention of anger is tied to foolishness. Will you feel anger in life? Absolutely, right? Is is righteous anger a thing? Yes. Is it a sin? No. But Ecclesiastes 7.9 says anger shouldn't take up residence in us. Shouldn't become a part of us. Sure, you'll feel it, but you can't cling to it and hold on to it. And Ecclesiastes 7.9 also echoes the words of James. We shouldn't be quick to get angry with a short fuse and thin skin like Andrew Jackson. But there was another historical figure I want to mention this morning called Alfred Noble. Now, he invented dynamite. But he invented dynamite with the idea that it would be used to make way for roads, build tunnels, bridges, right, to construct, not to destruct. But in a matter of a few years, it already became militarized and weaponized. This broke his heart. It depressed him that his invention created with the idea of construction was being used for destruction, even death. And he lamented this reality and so mourned it that it's the reason he created the Nobel Peace Prize, because he wanted his legacy to be tied to something positive and not destructive. Why do I share that? Because there are explosives in your mouth. You have TNT in your tongue, and you can use it 
to be a constructive part of building and making a way for relationship and making a way for the Holy Spirit and making a way for introductions with Jesus, or you can use it as a destructive tool for wounding. And it's anger that weaponizes it. That's why James tells us to be slow to become angry when he's talking about our words. But to pivot off a stick of dynamite, I want to think about the talking stick. Maybe you don't know what the talking stick is, but in Native American cultures, it's been around for centuries. And in their culture, when the atmosphere became tense and when conflict was in the air, when two tribes seemed on the brink of war, often they would break out the talking stick and come to meet. And in this meeting, only the person with the stick could talk. They would share, and then maybe they would share the stick with somebody else that could share their perspective, share their feelings, share what was going on with them until they felt that people fully understood their perspective. And then they would pass the stick and somebody else could speak until they all had their turn. This practice was so effective in disarming situations because it applies what's at the heart of our verse this morning. The more you listen, the more you learn. And the more you listen, the more you can empathize with another person's situations, feelings, and humanity. And the less angry you'll be. It's disarming. And notice, (laughs) understanding someone's perspective came before making my point. Because the goal isn't to change minds. It's not about me being right and you're wrong. The talking stick was about making things right. The talking stick realized that an informed perspective can produce empathy. And then when we have empathy, we can have unity again. And what James says here carries weight when we understand what he was addressing. The church had become divided on numerous issues, racial issues between Jews and Gentiles, socioeconomic divisions between the privileged and the poor. And God's church is still divided today on many of the same issues and along the same lines. Some doctrinal, many cultural, political, socioeconomic, the list goes on. And if the church is ever going to overcome division with diversity and walking in the unity that God desires for it, it's going to take people of one culture, especially the predominant and privileged culture, giving away the talking stick and humbly saying, what else don't I know? What else don't I understand? I mean, just think about how you, you think and speak about those who vote different, live different, make different decisions. I don't know how you could be a Christian and fill in the blank. Like, how could they say that? How could they vote that way? We don't so much present these, though, as genuine inquiries or questions. They're more accusations. And the fact that they're questions is, is telling. We don't know the answer. So what should happen is we should speak earnest questions, not angry declarations. We're so, we so often grossly overestimate how much we know about other people and other situations that we've never walked in. That's why the concept of the talking stick is so useful, and it's why James tells us we should avoid anger by being slow to speak and quick to listen. But then James gives us a second juxtaposition. He juxtaposes this anger to the righteousness that God desires. It says anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. See, when the focus isn't reconciliation, but it's about me being right, what's at the root? Not the righteousness God desires, but self-righteousness. I know I'm right. (laughs) I want you to know I'm right. I want everybody to know I'm right. But James would say that's not the right right. (laughs) James is, we're concerned with looking right, but God wants us to be concerned with loving right. And that means our focus isn't being right at with each other, at each other, but being right with each other. We aren't called to duel We're called to reconcile. That makes being slow to speak and quick to listen. But the end game isn't just 
to listen. James goes on to say in verse 21, therefore, right, now that the goal is clear, not winning arguments, but winning people, verse 21 says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This is so key because in our impulse to duel and always prove ourselves right, it's because we see so much wrong out in the world. There is wrong out in the world. There are things that need to be corrected in the world, but we so often don't see what needs to be corrected in us. You see, when James says get rid of evil, the Greek for evil speaks to malice, the desire to get back or pay back, which is so prevalent in a tit-for-tat culture. James is saying when you find yourself itching to win and exchange, itching to be right out of self-righteousness, shut it down. Get rid of it. We're no longer called to win or lose on those terms. We're no longer playing that game. Jesus has removed that board entirely. Jesus has given us an entirely new way to live, one that's not concerned with being right, but concerned with being reconciled. One that's not concerned with winning arguments, but is more focused on winning people. You know, I came to a point a long time ago where I'm no longer concerned without arguing people with my apologetics or drowning them in the validity of my beliefs or pinning them to the mat with my superior wisdom in prolific fashion so they have no choice but to accept Jesus as Savior. Because that's not how it works, right? Because I've been around the block long enough to know that might be a personal win, but those are spiritual losses. I don't change people. That's God's deal. I love them. Do you know how much pressure that relieves <laughs> to relinquish my right to being right and instead focus on reconciliation and relationship? You know how many duels I can just walk away from where people just say dumb stuff on the Internet? And I'm like, peace, <laughs> be still. Right? I can just walk away. And I'm not talking about conflict avoidance or, or cowardice, but relinquishing my instinct and my felt need to always be right and prove others wrong. This is the first step so often towards reconciliation and healthy relationships. Because what ultimately, again, matters is not what I know, but who I know. My goal isn't to change people by proving they're in the wrong. My goal is to introduce them to the God who already is reaching out to them right where they are, no matter what their perspective is in the moment. And that often takes a pivot from speaking to listening. And, you know, I could end the sermon here with this full circle uh, uh, talk on listening and, and speaking, but James doesn't stop here. And the next verses are so pivotal because James emphasizes not just being slow to speak and quick to listen, but being sure to do, to act on what we hear. Now, in verses 22 and 23, he pivots from speaking and listening in relationship and community to specifically listening to the word of God. And he implores us to spend time in introspection, emphasizing using the Bible as a mirror rather than this tool we use to just bludgeon people with the truth and prove ourselves right. James talks about this idea we read where to read the Bible and then just go on living without changing anything or acting on it is to basically like look in a mirror and forget what you look like. Who does that? That's crazy. James is saying, who reads the Bible and doesn't apply it? That's crazy. It's like Jesus taught, like, if you hear my teachings and don't apply them to your life, it's like you're just building a house on, on sand that's going to topple when the first storm comes. Their point is the same. The one that's blessed isn't the one who's loaded with mental ascent and head knowledge. It's the one who both applies it to themselves and acts on it by loving others. I love uh, 1 Corinthians 8.1 where Paul marks the difference. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
This speaks to our big idea. Don't just settle for being right. Look to make things right. One's puffed up, the other builds up. One's concerned with what they know, and the other is far more concerned with who I know and who you know. And again, this takes some steps. One being from being slow to speak and quick to listen, and the other is from listening and hearing to being a doer, a doer of the word. And I love that James here doesn't sign off there, doesn't leave it to us to be like, well, I guess I'll get to doing some stuff. Now he gets specific. In verse 27, James says, religion that our father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, I was struck recently in my reading that in our church culture, we often emphasize purity as what we don't do. Purity has become about not being polluted, most commonly in terms of sexual purity. And there's nothing implicitly wrong with that. It's in the verse at the tail end, right? Don't be polluted by the world. But you see, for Pharisees, for the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they too were focused on purity. But the, it, it, it emphasized for them avoidance, right? Their purity was fragile, easily polluted, and it needed to be protected from the world and sinners and outsiders and Gentiles. But Jesus left pure holiness in heaven to come into the muck and mire and mess of the world, and he wasn't defiled. He brought purity with him. See, both Jesus and the Pharisees, they wanted to do the word as James speak of, but their different definitions of holiness led them in different directions. For the Pharisees, holiness had to do with purity that separated them from the world. They didn't want to make things right as much as they simply wanted to be right with God. But Jesus operated from a perspective of compassion and mercy that sought not to just be right, because he was right, but he sought to make things right, to reconcile us with God. And we're called to do the same. Again, we often emphasize purity in ways that have nothing to do with actively caring for and ministering to the marginalized and suffering and outsiders. But that's what Jesus did. It's what James points directly to. James doesn't tie our purity to becoming holy hermits with a bunch of head knowledge. No, he ties purity of our religion and worship to doing. And not just in our comfort zone, not just in our, our, our familiarity and echo chambers, but in the margins to the poor and the oppressed, the down and out, the least of these. See, when we get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to say, well argued, good and faithful servant. Well reasoned, good and faithful servant. No, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's not going to ask, were you right? Who'd you convince? No, he's going to ask, who did you serve? Who did you feed? Who did you visit? Who did you love actively to practical service? May we live in such a way that we answer the more meaningful questions. That's what is pure religion. That's why I've got love for you guys and your pastor and your church. And I'm excited to be here the week before your five-year anniversary. Because I love you guys. I love the work you do. Right? We did the bed build together. Our churches a little over a month ago. But you guys do so much for this city. Right? You love this city. You serve the people in it. And James would say there's something pure about that. There's something pure about your religion. And again, I'm so grateful that you're uh, celebrating your anniversary next week. I'm so grateful for Pastor John and Carrie and all those people that were faithful to this bold step to plant this church. So let me close by encouraging you as a church. But also let me encourage you as people, individually. I don't even think I shared at the beginning of this, but <laughs> that song, Champion, the last song we did in worship, like I knew first service, oh, I'm right where I need to be. 
Because that I've told people, if pastor had walkout songs like UFC fighters, that would be on my jam. People, people in the church building know when I'm preaching because that song's blasting like 200 decibels from my office. That's like, if I'm going to preach, I'm going to listen to that song. And so when they were playing that song before service, I was like, oh, or during service, I was like, I'm in the right place. And they're playing my walkout song right before I preach. Look at that. But it's got that line uh, based about giants falling. And so I listen to the song. I'm like, God, what giants do you want to see fall today? What lies do you want to see toppled? What walls in people's lives that are separating them from you do you want to see knocked down through this sermon? And I was praying in the first service during that song, and I felt God said it's not so much giants as some parrots that are on some people's shoulders today that are repeating in your mind your failings, repeating your sin, repeating your guilt, your shame. Maybe even during this service you're thinking about, man, I said some stuff this week I should not have said. And that parrot's just sharing guilt and shame. But to come full circle, again, Jesus came asking questions because he didn't come to make a point. He came to make things right when we weren't right. And maybe this morning you've never stepped into that grace. You've never stepped into that relationship because in your mind you're thinking, I'm not right. I'm not right enough to come to God. But Jesus already made things right. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Meaning when my life wasn't right and my life was a hot mess, he died on the cross for each one of us. When you weren't right with God, Jesus made things right. That pull you felt to know God and be known by him, it's made possible through Jesus. And you can step into that relationship this morning. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. And if today's message helped or inspired you, feel free to share it with someone. If after today's message you have questions, need help, or just want somebody to talk to or process with, just shoot LifeHouse a text to 757 690-2401. For more information about LifeHouse, you can visit us at lifehouseonline.church. That's lifehouseonline.church.